0: Each year, over 560,000 children under five years of age die. And over half of these deaths are caused by diseases that have proven cost-effective treatments, including acute respiratory infections, diarrhea, and malaria. But the question is, why are these children dying? Why can't these families access care? It happens to be that in resource-limited settings, families face incredible barriers to care. This can include infrastructure that can be difficult to navigate, poverty, and the topic of today's conversation, nighttime presentation. So, what if a children gets sick after hours? Oftentimes, in these resource-limited settings, when local clinics have closed for the afternoon, Families with children who present with illness during the nighttime are forced to wait until the morning for non emergency care. But this waiting game can put these children at risk and transition their non emergent illness to an emergent illness that needs immediate care. This is where MotoMeds comes in. MotoMeds Healthline is a pediatric telemedicine and medication delivery service designed by Dr. Eric Nelson's team at the University of Florida to prevent pre-emergent illnesses from transitioning into emergencies at night when children are most vulnerable and isolated. After serving children during the nighttime access to care for three years straight in Haiti, they're now working on streamlining and digitizing their clinical support tools. MotoMeds is the perfect example of bridging the gap in health access without interfering with the local infrastructure and health practices in low-resource settings. During this conversation, I get to speak with Dr. Eric Nelson, originator and principal investigator of Motomedz, as well as Molly Klarman, project director of Motomedz in Haiti. But before we dive in, here's a little bit about our guests. Dr. Nelson is a pediatrician at University of Florida Health Shands Children's Hospital in Gainesville, Florida. He earned his medical degree from Tufts University and completed his pediatric residency at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital at Stanford University. While at Stanford, he completed a pediatric Global Health Fellowship and served as a pediatric global health physician scientist and instructor for the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. He's currently on staff at the University of Florida Emerging Pathogens Institute and is an assistant professor with the University of Florida Department of Pediatrics. Molly Klarman, our other guest today, is a public health professional who is the director of research initiatives at the University of Florida Public Health Research Lab in Gressier Haiti. Molly has conducted research across Latin America and the US in diverse areas including household water purification, development of diagnostic tests for parasitic diseases, and best agricultural practices for watershed management. She spent 7 years working for health and community development based NGOs in rural Haiti. She began working at the Nelson Lab in December 2017, and to date, she has contributed towards research projects, including a needs assessment to investigate the healthcare seeking behaviors of Haitian families with the onset of illness during nighttime hours, a case control study to investigate specific causes of household diarrhea in children under five years of age. And a serosurveillance surveillance study of COVID-19 and the improving nighttime access to care and treatment studies to evaluate and expand Motomeds. Molly earned her undergraduate degree from Lewis and Clark College and a Master's of public health degree from Emory University. My name is Hehel Dahman, and this is the Global Health Pursuit.
1: Welcome to Motomeds.
0: <laughs> Welcome to Moto Med. Woo. Okay. Well, Eric and Molly, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. The first time I heard about you guys was through another podcast called The Point, hosted by Callie Himsel. She's a good friend of mine. We've known each other for, i us say since 2020, since 2019. She was actually the first guest that I've ever had on a podcast because when I first launched Global Health Pursuit, before I relaunched it, she was my first guest. So it was just so, so nice to hear about you guys through her. Once again, thank you, Molly and Eric, for coming on the podcast. I think this is going to be an awesome discussion. I was just so intrigued by your stories and what you guys do. So Eric, I'm going to start with you first. What's your story?
1: What is my story?
0: What is your story?
1: That's a complex uh, question. My story is that I'm a pediatrician. Okay. I'm a microbiologist. And I think I put those two together in such a way that I see problems that are meaningful to patients, meaningful to doctors that are actionable. And then I bring them back to my laboratory and I chew on them and I try to combine technology, engineering, you know, infectious disease knowledge, clinical knowledge, to try to solve those problems. That's the short answer.
0: And you have your own lab. Your lab is called MotoMeds, or what do you call your lab?
1: Yeah, so I am an associate tenure professor at the University of Florida. Mm-hmm. I have a laboratory at an institute called the Emerging Pathogens Institute. Our job in our lab is to think about how can we better respond to outbreaks in their totality. And then we do that through the lens of cholera outbreaks, which typically happen at a very large scale across countries and prey upon countries that are devastated in terms of infrastructure, economy, and politics and leadership. So when you think about the journey of a cholera patient, there's many steps along that journey and there's many failures that we have in responding to the needs and wants of those patients as they experience a cholera, you know, outbreak. And The roots of MotoMeds comes from, you know, some of those failures in Mm -hmm. that in 2010, we had co-written a book on cholera outbreak management and we worked in City Soleil in Port-au-Prince and we could only operate clinically for six hours a day. And on the off 18 hours of that day, patients would get sick from cholera. They'd have a lack of access to, to knowledge and an oral rehydration solution. And They would have high rates of morbidity, mortality, death in such a way that we couldn't do anything about it because we couldn't work in those areas because it was unsafe. And so Mm -hmm. that's a very first step of the patient's journey. And we were asking, how can we extend care to those families early? And at the same time, you know, in the clinic, we do things like clinical decision support software development. We do diagnostic development. We do antimicrobial research research, and then also think about what drugs we should use resistance. And then we take that whole body of discovery. And then I sit with the world health organization and we funnel that onwards to the WHO so they can make policy. But moto is really at that first step. How do you mm-hmm. extend care early to families in the off hours to prevent emergencies?
0: Off hours, meaning like nighttime.
1: Nighttime is what we target because we feel like that's when families are most marginalized from accessing Mm -hmm. care. And that's when the needs are highest. And then funny enough, in pediatrics, I really feel like it's a nighttime gig. Kids always somehow make their diseases worse at night. And uh, strangely, that's when they have the least access to care.
0: That's really interesting. So Molly, I'm going to defer to you. What is your story? How did you get involved with Moto Meds?
2: Okay, so I'm a research coordinator and I've been working with Erica at University of Florida for five years and I'm to develop and expand this project through a series of research studies. And my background has just been broadly in public health. So almost all of it has been internationally international work, and the past I guess 11 years was working with organizations in Haiti. And I had been working for two NGOs in Haiti, where I was mostly kind of designing and implementing, evaluating projects in maternal, child, and reproductive health. And they're all—they're both positions were great experiences. But it got to a point where so I was getting a little bit bored professionally, and I was looking into other opportunities. And that's where I met Eric. Um, but I was super excited about it because I was, you know, wanted to get back into research. I kind of missed some of that, like evidence-based work in the NGO world, which not to say that it's Mm. not evidence-based, but you know, (laughs) there's a lot of of superlatives thrown around with like no facts behind them. Mm. So yeah, I was excited to start working with Eric uh, at UF on research again, but then also like the specific project that he had proposed really resonated with me um, because I had kind of already been doing my own kind of like telemedicine uh, I mean, not. I had, I had been a telemedicine user. Let's say, like, so when I have kids when they're sick, I would contact you know friends that I knew who are physicians from you know just working in public health in Haiti. You know, explain to them what's wrong with my kids, and they would say, okay, I think this is what, what you need, and I'd go to the pharmacy and buy it. And so I was, you know, I was like, I'm already doing this. Let's uh, yeah like, provide others this opportunity too.
0: That is so interesting. I so the question that came up in my mind was for Eric. Motomeds came out of your lab at University of Florida. It's not, an, it's not a nonprofit.
1: No, no, it's definitely not a, a not-for-profit right now, but that's a problem, and we definitely need to graduate Motomeds out of academia into the not, not-for-profit space, because a lot of the technical and academic and scientific things we've solved, and now we need to take this gift and make it fly uh, beyond academia.
0: So, the main problem you're really trying to solve is access to care for pediatrics during off hours. So, I was just reading on your website, you know, you said each year over 560,000 children under five years of age die, and over half of these deaths are caused by diseases that have proven cost effective treatments, including acute respiratory infections, diarrhea, and malaria. What is the model of motomeds in? how are you able to help these children without kind of interfering with the, I guess, the infrastructure that they already have within the country?
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I think it's really important to know that different places have different levels of infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. since we launched ModaMeds around three and a half years ago, the infrastructure that was in Haiti melted away. So the premise originally was that it is much more cost-effective to get to a kid in a pre-emergency state and give low-cost, proven, effective medications early to prevent progression to emergency where resuscitating a kid with an emergency and stabilizing them uh, is is quite expensive and requires an advanced facility. So there was a a cost multiplier there.
0: So what is the cost at that point?
1: I think it depends on... Depends on the setting. So right. we did a cost effectiveness analysis. And in that study, we kind of uh, made some assumptions and it's a modeling around what cost might be in a place mm-hmm. like Haiti. Mm-hmm. And it might be 250 to 300, 400 bucks for the cost of admission, which doesn't sound like that much in the US, but that might be a month's salary or maybe even two months' salary for a Haitian. Now, the model of MotoMeds is not limited to Haiti at all. So I think one of the best ways of telling the story is, you know, I've got an 11-year-old daughter and I live in Gainesville, Florida with an advanced medical center right down the road. Mm -hmm. Now, if my daughter starts having vomiting and diarrhea tonight, the question will be, what am I going to do? And there'll be a binary, which is, do I wait and miss work and go to the clinic in the morning or do I go to the emergency room? And there's no in-betweener. Some U.S. entities uh, will have an on-call nurse that might help you navigate that a little bit. But there's something different that we're doing, which is helping a family have knowledge in mind, but then also getting medication in hand. And even in the U.S. environment, with all our infrastructure, we don't do a very good job at that. So in Motomeds, when a call comes in, we go through a triage assessment and plan. And in the triage, we put them in the green yellow or red categories, the red bypass us and uh, go to the hospital either on their own, or we might provide a motorcycle for them to to, to motorcycle off the mountain uh, onwards to, to, the, to the clinic. And then the, the key is that the green cases will get medication delivery alone. And then the yellow cases will get medication delivery plus a nurse, because there's just certain things you can't do by phone. And you right. need that in-person encounter with a, with a professional to figure out, uh, what's the best approach to management. So that model is not limited to Haiti. It could right. completely be applied in the U.S. environment and provide a many, many thousands of dollars saving for each emergency room visit that you're averting in this case at Shands Medical Center at the University of Florida.
0: Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm or C share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. So what's the timeline like from the first, the moment that somebody calls in to when they actually get their medication?
1: That is another great question. So in trauma, We have this uh, phrase called the golden one hour, which is sort of, if you can stabilize and get that patient uh, to the operating room or to whatever is the critical intervention within 60 minutes, you have a huge bump in life probability. And so we kind of took that idea of the golden hour and rebranded it as the silver two hours, which is the idea that if we can receive a call, go through the triage assessment plan, get a nurse plus a motorcycle or a motorcycle loan to that household in under two hours, we think that the clinical exam and what we hear on the phone will probably continue for those two hours. And in practice, Molly and the team in Haiti average kind of in between, you know, 70 ish minutes and 80 ish minutes on, on their delivery time, which is amazing because there's no electricity, there's no address system. And there's no formal roads. So in
0: terms of, I'm going to defer to Molly now, in terms of like guidelines of care. So what is currently being used to support clinical decisions in these areas?
2: Okay, so we developed our own clinical guidelines and they're based on the WHO IMCI guidelines. So those are the Integrated Management for Childhood Illness guidelines. Those were meant for in-person interaction, but lower level, so like kind of like community Clinics, and so we used those guidelines and adapted them for telemedicine use, and we ended up with like three resources. One of them is like a twelve-page document called, that we call the clinical guideline, and it's split up by split up into six different common childhood illnesses, and there's this other category, and then within that, it's stratified by like triage level. So as Eric was mentioning before, mild, moderate, and severe, and then within that, there are recommendations on what how to treat. The illness, so like what kind of me- medications you might use and dosing and where to treat them if it needs hospital level care, if we need the in-person nurse visit or if we can do delivery. Um, and then there's some initial clinical information on how to come up with like a diagnosis for each of those problems. So it's, it's like, it's a very comprehensive document, but it's, mm-hmm. it's long. It can be a little bit complicated. And then we have a case report form, which has kind of like two purposes. So one is a data collection tool for our research but the other is it guides the provider. So in Haiti, we have nurses and nurse practitioners who staff the call center. So the case form guides them in which questions to ask the parent about the child's condition and history, because a child who's calling about diarrhea is not going to get the same questions as the child who's calling about a respiratory problem. Um, so the case platform guides them, and there's also some clinical de- decision support that's embedded within it, but it's not the full kind of clinical tool that is in the clinical guidelines so it's just kind of like key common kind of tips you could say in there and then we have a medication formulary in which basically a list or a spreadsheet of all the medications that we have in in our pharmacy and then the dosing and side effects and so it's like it can be complicated when you're when you're using the these tools you have to cross-reference. Um, so mm-hmm. there's three different documents. And then when you have multiple problems, so a child is calling about diarrhea and a respiratory infection. In some areas, you kind of just combine the recommendations, but in some areas, great, right, we don't want to prescribe two antibiotics. So then you have to choose which of the two that you might potentially be, be offering is the better one. So there are definitely limitations with the the paper tools. And that's why we have I've been working on creating an electronic digital decision support tool that will incorporate all of these, these, these different components. And then the other thing is there's a big learning curve to, to, I guess, employment at Motomed's, And it's, it's very time and resource intensive to train new providers. And so like right now it'd be hard to, to scale quickly and broadly. But we think with the new tool, we could, we'd be able to train new providers much more efficiently.
0: So you're saying that when the call comes in, and the provider is like, okay, the child is like, you know, these are the symptoms that the child is showing. And then they have these three paper documents that you just kind of have to sift through to figure out, like, what's going on. And now you're saying that you're developing a digital tool right? So what would that look like? Are you you just like inputting the symptoms and then something kind of spits out at you? Like, what, what does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we have a few guiding principles. One comes from Steve Jobs that said that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Yep. And that's a guiding principle for everything that we've done. So the National Institutes of Health funded the design of MotoMeds, and they funded a big piece of the development of this clinical guideline so that we could validate what we hear on the phone with mm-hmm. what one would see at the bedside as a reference standard. So now that we've gone through that validation phase, the trick is how then do we digitize it? And in other parts of, of my work, we digitize WHO guidelines, and we do that through a process called human centered design to really think about the provider, where they're at, and what are the limitations and pressures they have on their time, and how to get uh, something built that's fast, accurate, Mm -hmm. and pleasurable to use. And a lot of what we have in the U.S. would not be functional in a place like Haiti because of shoddy connectivity or simple things like maybe you know, like a a cell phone case that causes the phone to overheat. And then the the chip slows down on the device. There's all these like different things. And so you have to be on site to develop such software. So in a whole nother part of my life, we've done a lot of software development and we've come down to a relatively simple design. That's basically a calculator format where you have an input Mm -hmm. and an output. And it's going to be simple. It's not an electronic healthcare record system. It doesn't have a username and password. It's going to do a calculation for you. Now, we've worked with thyroid disease in the past. We just have one input page and one output page. But we took all of pediatrics and boiled it down to six chief complaints plus other. So even with six chief complaints, it's still kind of six dimension chess. Right. And so the way that the, the pages lay out is that there's five input pages. Now there's basically a vital sign page uh, that's virtual or in person. There is a danger sign screening to identify any patient that has a disease agnostic danger sign. And then there's a page where you pick your problem and you pick the problem the patient's calling about. And then you go to a side swipe to a page that will drill down deeper into questions specifically about that problem. and then. You press advance, and then there's a screening for dehydration status because generally, no matter what the chief complaint is, children are susceptible to dehydration. Mm-hmm. There's a meds and allergy, a safety check, and then a press calculate. And then you get to the output page, which gives you a summary, a rehydration plan, medication specific to those problems, where to treat the patient, how to do follow up, and then it's simple. So, our design requirements are such that a provider should be able to get through that in kind of five to eight minutes because our overall... As opposed to... Well, so right now our call times are about 22 minutes, and we want to get that call time down to kind of between 12 to 16 minutes. Hmm. And there's a lot of things that have to go, you know, happen in, the, in that short time frame, including calculating the dosing of those meds. Right. Um, and so our goal is to kind of increase guideline adherence, increase call time, decrease time to delivery and decrease that learning curve that, that Molly had mentioned. And then in the space of human computer interaction, the other challenge is something very human, which is when you hear something on the phone, you're naturally going to do a pattern detection on if you trust or don't trust information that's coming at you. And then you have to convert that to a sense of confidence of am I confident to make a clinical decision based on what I'm hearing? And so uh,
0: that's like a whole nother dimension. Yeah.
1: So early on in the guideline, shortly after we started moto the nurses were pushing back in a very good way and saying, look, we're getting data. We want to record it, but we need an option to say, I'm not confident. Mm. And then in the decision tree, you know, mode of clinical decision-making, the question is how much are you going to go down a branch of a decision tree if that data is such that the provider's not confident in it. And so we've dealt with that on paper, and now we're working through that on the digital environment. And in the spirit of keeping things simple, right now we're not bringing any more advanced decision-making, more AI-related tools to the table, but clearly decision trees have their limitations, and some of the AI tools can help us Move through that difficult navigation of a provider that's good with facts, a provider that's good with knowledge, and then a provider that's good uh, with wisdom. Getting the wisdom takes years, but we're trying to, with our guideline and the software, make that a faster journey.
0: Could either of you give an example of the confidence, like the difference in confidence, and how that could affect your dosing or your, you know, what you prescribe?
2: Sure. So there's there's a couple questions that we've found that parents are either not understanding and so they can't relay the proper information or they like, you could say, I don't say exaggerate, but I guess I'll say exaggerate. They sometimes think if they, ha- they relay the um, situation to be like more urgent and more severe than it actually is, that they will like either receive like more care, faster care or better care. But in the situation with meds, if we think you have a severe illness or a danger sign, then we're going to send you to the hospital and then you won't receive any care from us. So it's kind of like counterintuitive. So so what happens is some parents will like like I said, just make their situation seem like more severe and then sometimes they just don't understand the question. So for example, we, we there's four questions with the dehydration assessment and so you know, if if a parent makes it seem like their child is like severely dehydrated, but then you can like hear, you know, and then you ask them like, well, what did the child do today? And they're like, oh, they went to school. And like, you know, that that doesn't, you know, it's it's contradictive. Like a, a child who's severely dehydrated probably wouldn't be going to school like normally, you know. So so in and so then they like drill down deeper to see like what specific pieces of information are causing this kind of like contradiction within the kind of like presentation of the case. And then when they they mark off something as being not confident, it's kind of just like eliminated from the when you eliminated from the data you use to come up with a treatment plan. So in, for example, the dehydration assessment has like four components usually, but if there's one that's marked off, confident, we don't we we don't count it as yes or no. We just use three components to come up with the dehydration assessment the severity level of the dehydration.
0: So when all of this data is put together at the end of a call. Is it stored in, like, a, a separate system? Like, because I'm thinking about, like, EMR systems, right? Medical rec- record systems that we have here. Like, the next time that child calls that has, like, some similar symptoms or whatever, is that brought up? Or is that, like, the the goal?
2: So currently, we, we, we don't have, like, an EMR system. And I don't think that's actually the plan. So for the, right. the okay. tool... It's more um, like a calculator type tool. So once you, you know, plug in all the information, you get your output, then I mean, we are storing it for research purposes, but it's not going to be available in okay. future.
1: I, I think your question is a really important one because we are not a primary care provider. Right. We are a bridge overnight between daytime provi- primary care providers. And so it's really important that we maintain those relationships. We nurture them. And that we do a good conveying of what the follow-up plan is to the primary care provider. So in the kind of mindset of urgent care, we are dealing with the urgent problem, but we're not managing uh, chronic diseases that would really require more of that past Mm -hmm. medical history. We're in a very narrow spectrum of clinical practice. Um, We do ask about standing medical problems because that might affect you know, our clinical decision-making. The other thing that's really important about what we're doing is that if our guidelines and our software was to cover 100% of the case diversity that we see, see, we would fail. Mm -hmm. So we're very specific that we target around 90 to kind of 92, 95% of the total cases uh, within our guidelines so that we can keep it simple. And then that remaining kind of Five-ish percent, or maybe two-ish percent of, of cases, uh, we defer that from our nurse practitioner and nurse-level provider onwards to on-call doctors that will field those more complicated off-guideline cases. And I think that, from a design principle standpoint, that's a really key piece: is don't try to do everything. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, ne- do a good needs assessment and understand where the bulk of the cases is, and then have an option to opt off the guideline to in this case, a physician that can govern those more complicated cases. Uh, The the other thing which I haven't mentioned is that we've mainly been focusing on the clinical side of things, but there's a very complex logistics operation at play as well. And I mentioned the drivers and the drivers are absolutely critical to the success of a MotoMeds model because they have an amazing granular know-how of the landscape that we work in so that I swear you could almost blindfold a driver and they could navigate uh, through the countryside and find a house in that under two hour window. And in many ways, because it's in the middle of the night and the lighting is bad, they are almost blindfolded on what they do. And that is so essential to work with local pools and motorcycle drivers. And as you know, most, Pools of mo- motorcycle drivers exist pretty much around the world, uh, especially in developing countries. And that's a key piece. The other piece is a paradigm shift when it comes to emer- emergency medical services. So a typical model is you have patients at households and you go identify those patients, you send an ambulance and you bring them to a centralized resource. We reached out to a partner called Trek Medics that builds a piece of software called Beacon for low resource settings to do EMS work. And we asked them, could we take that paradigm and then flip it upside down such that we move resources from a centralized location out to a household Mm -hmm. and basically reverse uh, their software pathway. And so they provide us that logistical software and dispatch ability to not only do the dispatch, but then basically track the metrics of time to response time to delivery time to return to office and their logistics system and our design is one that can be centralized or distributed depending on what the the design needs so in Gracié our call center is physically there and then our nurses are either at the call center or at home our drivers are typically at home and then we dispatch from there in Okai it's a very distributed model we don't have an office there so calls come in the Gracié and then we have on-call nurses and drivers in, in Gressier that will do the deliveries overnight. And so it's a really cool kind of new concept in the healthcare space, especially in LMIC settings. However, if you make a study, which is what um, I originally did when I started Motomedz, is I studied the food delivery service networks in DACA, which is a city soon to be, 30 million people, one of the third or fourth largest cities in the world. They have equally and even more so complicated logistics for doing dispatch. And we brought a lot of the the know-how from the food delivery business into MotoMeds to think about not just working within the scope that we're at right now, but how would you then move to covering an entire country or branching globally?
0: That's actually genius to look at the the similarities of food delivery services. That's really interesting. So in terms of sustainability and, you know, you said that you have all the nurses and the nurse practitioners that are on call. And then you have the drivers,
2: like are all these people paid? Uh, Yes. Yes. (laughs) They're definitely all all paid. So right now we're still like within the context of research, right? So, Uh We're being funded by typical mechanisms for research. And then also through like, private donations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, one thing that's, that's been kind of, I don't want to say controversial, but we've been thinking about and talking about a lot is whether users are supposed to pay and how much do they pay. And so um, yeah. mm-hmm. when we started in Haiti, we had, we requested a like contribution of 500 goods, which is was the equivalent of about five US dollars. And that was enough to cover the medications and then, uh, the delivery. So it didn't, didn't cover like the, does didn't cover the cost of research, but didn't cost, didn't cover the salaries of the, the nurses and the drivers are, are getting paid by delivery. You could obviously use a different model where they are paid by salary. I mean, they use their own motorcycles. They put their own gas in. They take care of their own motorcycles, but you could, you know, use a different mechanism too. And so we had about, but we, we said, we told families that don't let, when our advertising, we said, don't let the fee prevent you from calling. We didn't outright say that it was free, but we just told them that. And then when like we're done with the consultation on the phone or the exam, we would tell them, okay, well you need, this is what we recommend. And then we tell them that there's a, a contribution of, you know, 500 goods. And then if they say they don't have it, we would ask them if they have something less. And then they would either offer something less or they would say, I don't have anything. And then we would say, okay, well, it's fine. We'll still prep- provide you with the service. And so when we started, we were getting about fifty percent of families were paying at least in part, if not full, and that's dropped. That's dropped down to about like twenty percent um, now. We're three and a half years later, and uh, could be for a number of reasons. I mean, the the economic situation is significantly worse in Haiti right now, but also right. families could have you know thought before that the the fee was like really kind of strict, and then now they're hearing it's free. It could have to do with like the advertising, like who's doing the advertising and how they're doing it. But one of the other reasons we wanted to make sure that there was like that it wasn't free was because we didn't want families to delay seeking care. So instead of going to like the clinic during the day, um, where they have to pay, they would say, "Okay, I'll just wait until nighttime and call motomets for free." So we really we didn't want to dissuade them. I see, and and then we also didn't want to disrupt the like healthcare existing healthcare infrastructure. So like those clinics that are you know, do require income. Private clinics that you know require income from their patients to operate. We didn't want to like put them out of business. Now, like Eric said, the healthcare infrastructure in Haiti is like completely changed. But that was like the original idea. And there's a lot of like studies on whether copays are good or bad or like sliding scales. I mean, it's like, it's very. It depends on the situation, and I I am not even you know sure what what's best in our situation, but that's how. We started, and this is how we're, we're still writing.
0: That's really interesting. I mean, you started out saying that this is kind of controversial, or it might be controversial, because, I, I mean, my family's from India. So, like, I, I can, like, get into the mindset of, like, them, you know? And I feel like if one, commu- if one family that lives, you know, right down the street is getting their treatment for free, then they'd be like, oh, well, we can get treatment for free too, you know? And then it just kind of spreads like wildfire.
1: Spreads like wildfire, indeed. And, And it kind of speaks to this idea of value and unintended negative consequences that interventions like this have had on communities. So the partnership that Molly mentioned with our daytime providers is key. Don't want to create systems in which Families will delay to seek care because it's right. free at night. And that's been a really contested debate that we've had uh, with partners outside of, of Motomeds. And so, you know, there's a rich conversation going on, and it kind of speaks to this idea of uh, the democracy of, of global health that is kind of where a lot of, of, of global health is going right now. And we have to be really good listeners with each of our partners as we think about expanding around Haiti, but also outside of Haiti, because those perspectives are very different. So in the expansion to Ghana with our partners at University of Florida, Torben Becker and and, and Katie Flaherty, they're working really closely with the Ministry of Health in Ghana and the National Ambulance Service, which by decree of the constitution and the way the healthcare system is set up, a free model is, is what has been deployed in Accra. And it's had strengths and weaknesses. And then it's really important for us to learn what are those relationships? How are we affecting um, not only the patient's experience, but also the providers that are, in this case, in Accra. And I have a feeling that everywhere we go and expand to, that conversation will be at the table and we'll do our best to be good listeners. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that are not on this podcast today. Uh, We work with a neonatologist and pediatrician who's part of the State University of Haiti, um, Dr. Chantal Buril, who really does a lot of the advocacy. We work with the ethical review boards at the University of Florida and the the government in Haiti to, to, to field these cultural and, and scientific questions. That kind of team for Haiti is the same kind of team environment uh, that we have in Ghana and potentially future places so that this isn't just out of the minds of Molly and Eric that we really think about a more kind of holistic approach. So it's a win for everyone.
0: You said something about expansion. So earlier in our conversation, you were saying that, you know, the goal might be to become a nonprofit and then, you know, expand from there. Where are you looking to go in the next couple of years?
1: So it's kind of funny right now. I feel like we're super vulnerable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I think our success uh, and, and our survival really will really hinge on expansion uh, because the cost effectiveness model hinges on basically more coverage, which reduces the cost per, per patient. And so uh, right now, our vision is that we're working in Ghana as a test of adaptability of the MotoMeds model from a place like Haiti to a place mm-hmm. like Ghana. And we probably will maintain close ties with both those settings because it's a constant iterative process, but we do not uh, want to have that level of kind of more micromanaging engagement because we're, we're we're too small of a team. And I don't think it's a good, and it also denies a lot of empowerment, which is really important. So the idea is that the logistical operation, the clinical decision support software the overall business model it needs to get packaged in such a way that it can be taken off of a shelf either from the WHO or for a Motomed's not for profit and then localized to the needs and wants of let's say the Aga Khan a medical system in Pakistan or the you you kind of name your medical system or an NGO that has an amazing network of community healthcare workers that do an outstanding job on hours, but they know quietly in the background that they could do better with urgent overnight care or weekend care when the community healthcare workers may be off hours or the logistics might be too hard. So we kind of view this package as inserting itself into government systems, but then also being a value add to. NGOs.
0: Have you started having those conversations with other NGOs or
2: nonprofits? So we've talked to some of like the larger, um, not some of the larger, but like one or two larger NGOs and they were very receptive of the idea, but we, neither us or them were ready to like commit to any like partnership Mm -hmm. or anything. But yeah. So when we've we've talked to a number of people about just like the Moda model and like what we've been doing, but like one of the like, kind of key components of this is the digital clinical decision support tool. Like without mm-hmm. it, we're not gonna have a package. So that is probably the the final not to say the final step, but like at the, the once that is developed and ready to go and it's being tested, like you know, immediately following that we we need yeah. to finding partners <laughs> who want to actually implement
1: it. I was just gonna say that we've had some really outstanding conversations with big players like Save the Children. And in this case, the Swiss branch of Doctors Without Borders, you know, big players that that implement around the world. And there's kind of a very Silicon Valley-esque nature to those calls, which mm-hmm. we have a solution for a problem that is a good one. Nice. However, I think the very first step is does, in this case, Save the Children and Doctors Without Borders and other parties Do they want to acknowledge the problem? And I think if you're hustling to just deal with the daytime healthcare needs, Mm. you don't have the bandwidth to think about the off hours problems. And so I think that there is a hesitancy to be an early adopter into a metomeds model because of a lack of recognition for those 16 or 18 hours of the day that don't have coverage And I think first you have to recognize that, and then you have to look for a solution. The other piece has been really fascinating out of the National Ambulance Service in Ghana, in which they have this amazing nationalized ambulance service. But they, like many EMS services, a lot of their calls are not emergencies. And so they're burdened with all these non-emergencies, and they need to offload those cases to prioritize the emergencies and many 911 like services need a solution to the, to do the offloading, including, including the U S, but there's not mm-hmm. a mechanism to do that. So Motomed's can fit that. But then again, you have to first have a recognition of the balance between emergencies and non-emergencies, non-emergencies. in an EMS system. So it's been frustrating, but I know that it takes time to, to do adoption.
0: Yeah. And I've always, you know, when you were talking, I just kind of, you know, in my, in my mind, I was just seeing you guys pitching like Shark Tank, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, I'll say that part of the design initiative started when I was back at Stanford and I was mentored by a gentleman, Terry Winograd, who was a co-founder of the design school at Stanford. And he quietly was also an advisor to Larry Page of Google. And for a couple of years, I went to Terry and he uh, wrote little addresses and notes on, on Post-its and gave them to me and sent me on errands around Silicon Valley to talk with people and think about the design challenge we were facing, trying to learn from the successes of Silicon Valley and trying to avoid the many failures. And, uh, you know, that experience has helped, I think, this design and pulled it away from like you know, for the college of medicines are and think more about the anthropological needs the sociologic needs. Mm -hmm. And those are key features I think have that we've done a good job on. And then I am definitely seeing things through one lens and Molly is a very complimenting lens of the table. Yeah. I love that.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for coming onto the podcast. I think this is so, so, so important. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about.